Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. A reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace. But glorify God, because you bear this name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys, and what a lovely space we have to gather in. I hope you get a chance, as, you're, uh, as you make your way out, check out some of the art that's on display here. It's an incredible space, and we're so grateful to be meeting here. This is our second week here, and uh, we'll be here for a couple more weeks until we transition back to the middle school. But uh, just again, thank you to the Arts Council uh, for their beautiful vision for the community, and thanks for you guys for being here. We've been a church for almost 11 months now. So we're getting close to a year, and uh, yeah, we're still just sort of in that phase of like, wow, people are here, people show up, this is amazing, and so we're so grateful that you guys have joined with us today. Well, we've been in a series on First Peter, and as the church calendar transitions to Lent, uh, a time of, of sort of examining ourselves, allowing God to do work in us, I think that the, the words in First Peter kind of meet us in that space, and so we're going to finish um, our time in First Peter next week before we begin a series that leads us towards the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the thing. Any of you kind of been doing something where you're fasting or maybe abstaining from something or maybe taking on a practice for Lent? You don't have to, yes. Uh, yeah, raise your, oh yes. We're, you know, let your righteousness be shown before others. This is what we're doing here. But here's the thing. The, the early church, and the church historically was very smart in this. They understand our capacity for discipline. So there are 40 days in Lent in the calendar season, but there are 46 days between the beginning of Lent and Easter Sunday. Here's what this means. On Sundays, you get to feast. Because even though you may be abstaining from something like chocolate or red wine or whatever it is that's going to make you more holy, whatever that is... On Sundays, you get to live like the resurrection has already happened. And so, let that just be your pastoral rubber stamp. Whatever thing you were fighting your flesh on and you've, like, you've won for like three days, now I've just totally ruined your discipline. So, that's what I'm here to do. You're welcome. So, we're in First Peter. Zechariah read for us from the second half of chapter 4. And I, I want to begin today uh, just by talking about the church historically. 
You know, oftentimes we don't have a strong sense of this because it's not our... For, for many of us, and specifically those of us who, who come from more privileged situations, um, we don't have a sense for the way that the church has historically been marked by suffering. And so Irenaeus writes of Blandina, a slave girl who suffered in the Roman arena for her faith in Jesus. She was savagely tortured for sport with a crowd cheering all of it on. Think of Gladiator. Think, are you not entertained? And this young girl is being thrown to wild beasts, being pierced with spears and swords. And yet Irenaeus writes not to just declare the horrid state of this young woman, but also to show that through her immense suffering, through her beaten body, she declares something to the world that words could never do. Because all Blandina had to do, this young slave girl, all she had to do was recant her faith in Jesus. All she had to do was say, you know what, it's it's not really this true. It's not true for me in this moment. But because she doesn't, she endures the tortures and the pains of the, uh, of the empire, and she stands against them. And she declares with her very life that Jesus is truly Lord of all. That he is Lord both when things are going beautifully and the sun is shining, and he is Lord when things are, are so hard that they threaten our very lives. And Irenaeus writes, in her body, the, the, the people looking on saw the one crucified for them. And the people that were martyred with her had this sense that Jesus himself was right there with them. That her body was so transfigured that it so declared the beauty and the power of Jesus that even in the face, this is what Pilate says to Jesus. He says, don't you know you have the power to kill me? And Jesus responds to, to, to kill you. And Jesus responds to Pilate. He says, He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And so throughout church history, we see this paradox. We see this paradox of pain and suffering, and yet God drawing near in ever-increasing ways. And so today, this passage that we're going to look at sort of gives us a wide-angle perspective on the painful suffering that his audience is enduring. And as we talk about suffering today, I want to offer a few notes, especially as we begin, Uh, because I, as your pastor, I I know so many of you, I know your stories, I know many of you, when we talk about suffering, you're like, "I'm, I'm suffering here this morning. And Peter makes some profound moves here, and he also draws some distinctions that I want to make sure that we keep in view as we're walking through this text. First thing that Peter does not do. He does not diminish or deny the reality of evil and suffering. He doesn't say, oh, it's it's all in your head. It's all going to be fine. Like Peter fully steps into the situation and leans into it. The second thing Peter does not do is he does not idealize suffering. He doesn't make it something that, he, that his audience should pursue. What he describes it as is a, is a state of being a Christian. Like, this will probably come for you at some point. But he doesn't say, go, go and seek it out. Go and find it. And the third thing he does not do, and friends, this is so important for so many of us in here today. He does not blame his audience for the fact that they're suffering. And so if you came in here today, and it was hard getting out of bed, or you feel that weight on your chest every morning when you wake up, can I just tell you, friends, that Peter has a word for you? 
He has a word for us as we see the suffering of Jesus, but he also wants to kind of pull our perspective up. Because Peter here is primarily addressing Christians who are suffering for the fact that they are a Christian. And much of the suffering that we endure in this world, things like the death of close loved ones, illness, depression, confusion, does not come on account of the fact that we follow Jesus. Like if if you were sitting here in the room and we had some Christians gathered and we had some people that weren't following the way of Jesus together, our stories would be quite similar, right? Like following Jesus doesn't mean everything's going to go amazingly for you. Anybody? Right? Like when I, when I said yes to Jesus, my life didn't suddenly become awesome, right? It was, there was more goodness, more joy, but it didn't stop the bad things from coming my way. And as Christians, we have this opportunity to see our suffering in light of our beautiful Savior. And, and another thing I want to say is that we so often in our culture sort of embrace this kind of pseudo-suffering. Uh, especially as it pertains to political conversations. There's these culture wars that try to kind of bring us onto their side. And, and, and Peter's not talking about that. And in fact, he'll address this a little bit more as we get into the text today. But there's this sort of suffering. The church kind of plays this, the role of the sufferer often in the United States. When, when people that are really suffering for their faith, people in places like Iran and Nigeria are sitting there saying like, really, that's, that's suffering? Are you sure? And so we want to make sure that we hear that word today uh, because there are so many things that would try to enlist us in their cause when Peter is saying that the, the cause that we are fighting for today is the cause of Jesus. And it, it's so beautiful what he says at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, arm yourselves with the same intention as Jesus Christ. And I love that metaphor because how did Jesus arm himself? Well, he armed himself with a cross. He armed himself by extending his hands, by letting people nail his hands into a cross. He didn't take up weapons. In fact, when Peter, who writes this letter, picks up a sword, he says, Peter, you don't understand. And he heals the man that Peter strikes with his sword. And so today, as we drop into this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, the community that Peter is addressing is suffering for their commitment to Jesus They've stopped participating in civic festivals designed to honor the gods and and designed to honor the emperor, and thus they have incurred the shame and the scorn of their neighbors. Now, this has isolated the believers, put their jobs and their economic security in jeopardy, and caused them to be the objects of suspicion when anything goes wrong. Now, think about it. These, These Christians refuse to honor the emperor. They refuse to worship the gods that are, that are important to the local uh, place that they live in. And so anytime something goes wrong, whether it be a natural disaster, whether it be, uh, you know, economic insecurity, they just kind of look at the Christians. You're like, they're like, you know, things were going fine when we were all worshiping the gods, but these people, they don't seem too interested in that. And so the, the Christians were so, uh, a constant object of suspicion amongst their neighbors. People were looking at them with, with sort of side eyes saying like, I don't know if these people have it all together. And as we begin in this passage, we see Peter opens his exhortation to his, this churches that he's writing to by identifying his lives in solidarity. He calls them beloved. And he says to them, he says, do not be surprised And he says this because of how thoroughly the ways of Jesus runs contrary to the way of both their former lives and the way of the empire. That they have been given a new birth into a living hope 
Peter writes in, in the first chapter of this letter, but that hope doesn't fundamentally change the world around them. Rather, this hope is like being given oxygen in a world that is short on air. The believers breathe in this new life. But again, Jesus came and he, he announced his presence. He announced this new reality, but this new reality breaks forth right in the midst of the world as it is. Jesus didn't come and start a revolution in the way that we would perceive of it. Jesus came and he enlisted revolutionaries. And he said, come and follow me. Come and follow my way. And he invites us to the faithful and slow ways of walking in the way of Jesus. And the ways of walking in this way have caused them to walk against the flow of the surrounding culture. And inevitably, this causes friction. Peter describes this as a fiery ordeal. But here is where God's affinity for paradox, and let me, let me just tell you, friends, this is just a, a very free aside. God loves paradox. Jesus comes as fully God, fully man. Like, can you explain that? I can't. It's a mystery. God is holding these things in tension, and he invites us often to sit in these places that invite us into tension. And so Peter begins to show that God does have an affinity for paradox, and he begins to show that this fiery ordeal is now an instrument of testing. But notice he doesn't ascribe the genesis of this trial to God. He doesn't say that that these temptations are coming upon you because of God. But what God often does, and he does this throughout our lives, is he takes things that are designed to tempt us, designed to make us fall, and he turns them into tests. He takes things that tempt us, and he turns them into tests. Now, James says that God tempts no person. Like, God is not up there saying, hmm, who can I get to mess up today? He's not, like, looking at your life and saying, oh, that person gave up chocolate for Lent. Let me just put them in the candy aisle. Like, this is not God's thing that he's doing there. But here's what God is doing. He is saying that, that, that a life for him has to be tested, has to be put in the furnace of, of faithfulness, has to be invited into a life that has seen God show up in places where it seems hard. And Peter is no stranger to trial in this way. At the end of Luke's gospel, Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat. And Peter responds to Jesus, and he says, No, Jesus, I will never leave you. I'll never leave your side. I'll never walk away from you. And, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, before, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me three times. And so this moment that Satan, and I, you know, what do you want to ask? Well, how does Satan get to demand of Jesus anything? That's another sermon. You can come back for another week. But this moment, Jesus is saying that this has originated with Satan. This test, and Peter says, I'm going to pass this test. And Jesus says to him, well, actually, you're not. And as we see from the scriptures, Peter does not succeed in this. He fails in this test. But what God does is he takes even our failures and he turns them into these incredible stories. If you read the end of John's gospel, Jesus is sitting on the beach as after his resurrection. Peter sees him from the water and he jumps into the water and he swims to Jesus. And you can imagine what Peter's feeling like. The last interaction that Peter and Jesus had was Peter saying to his friend, I will never, ever leave you. And then what does Peter summarily do? 
He denies. At one point, he almost swears. He says, I don't know the man. But Jesus meets Peter on the beach. And there's this interesting thing going on in John's gospel. The only time the Greek word used for charcoal in the New Testament is used when Peter is warming his hands around a fire. And somebody asks Peter, they say, Peter, do you know Jesus, the Galilean? And he says, no, 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 I don't know him. And Peter's warming his hands, keeping cold from the night air. And then isn't it interesting that as Peter swims up to the beach upon that resurrection morning, as Jesus is making breakfast, the text makes sure to note that Jesus is cooking breakfast over charcoal. And then how many times did Peter deny Jesus in the text? Three. And Jesus has this subtle way of just asking these beautiful questions. And he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And he says to him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. One more time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. But what is Jesus doing here? He's taking this test, even this one that Peter failed, and he's saying your failures are an opportunity for God's grace to be sung out into the entire world. And so this morning, even if you feel like you walked in here and you, you, you've been trying to follow the way of Jesus, and you're like, I, I haven't been keeping that together. If that's you this morning, God doesn't throw these things away. He's asking you simply, do you love me? He's taking that test, even the ones you fail, and turning it into a testimony of God's glory. Test and testimony. I've heard that before. That was pretty good. <laughs> now, here's the, the truly surprising part as we begin to see in Peter. Peter doesn't just look at his audience and say, hey, I know you're suffering. I know it's really hard. I'm so sorry that happened. But he tells them in the text, he says to them, not only do you have to endure this, not only do you, do you have this opportunity to get through this, he says, rejoice. And what a strange and almost insensitive thing for Peter to say here. He's like, hey, you're having a rough go at it, right? The society's against you. You're struggling to make ends meet because your, your commitment to Jesus has put your job in jeopardy. Your neighbors treat you with outright contempt and spread horrible gossip about you, but cheer up. Now, we, we all have that friend, right? Like that person who lives like a little too close to the bright side at all times, right? And, you know, maybe you're like me. There, there's a, like a level of brokenness that I, that I live with that's just like, if you're a little too happy, I'm not sure I trust you. I'm not sure you're looking at the world, honestly. But, but you know, thank you for all the optimists in our life. We're very, very grateful for you. Now, Peter's call to rejoice is not this kind of weak, oh, it's not that bad, it'll all be okay. Now we all have those people that are like, somebody has it worse. And you're like, I know somebody has it worse. I just don't know what it means to be them right now. Like, I just know my own experience right now. Peter's call to rejoice is not some like pat on the head saying, it's all going to be, it's all going to be fine. It'll work out. Peter's call to rejoice is a call to the sort of resurrection joy that doesn't deny death but undoes it. Now look at what he says in the rest of verse 13. He says, Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Jesus. Peter grounds our rejoicing in the face of trial, not in some kind of deluded, self-help, Christian wash-your-face kind of nonsense. His call to rejoice is grounded in the way that Jesus' sufferings 
when Jesus empties his life on behalf of the world, they bring about new life. In Jesus' sufferings on the cross, Jesus doesn't minimize, minimize or deny suffering. He drinks suffering down to the dregs. He empties himself completely. He dies, and in his death, he overcomes death. Death as a power, as this power that keeps us enslaved, as this power that sort of holds the end over our head, is transformed as the final passageway to life unending. Death itself is undone by Jesus' death. And Peter here, what he's doing is he's grounding our sufferings in the sufferings of Jesus and then describing them as participation in the sufferings of Jesus. Friends, when we suffer for our faith, our sufferings become like those of Jesus, redemptive and invitational. Jesus' sufferings redeem the world, and they also invite everybody to come close. And then Peter says to his church, he says, then, if you are insulted for and reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And Peter, as he stood around, Peter was present for the greatest sermon ever preached that Jesus, when he sat down on a mountain in Matthew 5, and he said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And Peter surely has those words in his mind, those blessings, as he hears the words of his Savior in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says to the, the gathered crowd there, he says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And Jesus says to them, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Peter then gives the reason for this rejoicing, because the presence of God is here. He says, the spirit and the spirit of glory, the spirit of God rests on you. And friends, you'll hear me say this a million times if you, if you walk with us for any time, but this brings the whole message of scripture to this moment right here. How can we rejoice in suffering? How can we endure? Because God is with us. Not just an idea of God, God is not counting on your doctrinal sort of recall and your ascription to a certain set of beliefs. God himself comes and he dwells in our midst. And I, I, I think about this all the time. This is the heart of the scriptures. If you trace it from beginning to end, when God makes the world, he puts the man and the woman in a garden. And then it says that he walks in the garden in the cool of the day. When he liberates the people from Egypt, when he liberates slaves and brings them out into the wilderness, he goes as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. God is wanting to show us beyond any shadow of a doubt that no matter what is going on in our lives, he is with us. And this is the central point of this passage here this morning. As Peter talks about suffering, as he talks about rejoicing, as he talks about suffering overcoming the world, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory is resting on you. That same presence that was present in the fire and in the cloud is now in our hearts, as Paul says. We have become temples of the living God. Peter describes us as living stones. God is wanting to come and take up residence in your heart. And this is what turns suffering from something that we have to endure to suffering that is something that is invitational, that is redemptive, that our suffering on behalf of the name of Jesus becomes something greater than our experience. 
God is with us. In verse 15, as Peter walks through it, he tells us, and I think he does something interesting here. I I don't think for any of you, like, there's some things I could say that would be surprising about God. But if I told you that God does not want you to kill people or steal from people, even if you're just like the biggest atheist there is, you'd be like, yeah, I, I can get on board with that, right? Those are kind of the basics. So Peter does something interesting here. He says, your suffering should not be account of doing wrong. He says, don't kill people and don't steal things. But then he throws in this other phrase, don't be a mischief maker. Now, I like to make a little mischief. So like, what's, what's going on there? Why does he equate these like obvious bad things with something that seems kind of neutral at best, right? Well, I think what Peter is telling us, remember, he's writing to an oppressed people, a people who have no agency in the political structures of their world. And he's saying that Jesus has, has enacted this revolution, but it is a subtle revolution. It is something that unfolds over time. And this word for, uh, in the Greek, this word for mischief maker, and I checked this with our resident Greek scholar, Mr. Bryson Sewell, who's a PhD in classics, so we're getting there. Uh, he says that the writer is seeming to refer to those who with holy but intemperate zeal meddles with the affairs of Gentiles, whether public or private, civil or sacred, in order to make them, listen to this, conform to the Christian standard. So what Peter is describing here are people that look at other people's lives or even take on an unnecessary burden as it pertains to the politics of our day, not that that's relevant in any way to us, social media. And he looks at them and he says, look, you're concerning yourselves with affairs that are not for you. You're concerning yourselves, you're meddling in things that are not your responsibility or your concern. And then look at what Peter does here. He says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? Here's what I think Peter is doing. He's saying it is so easy to look at the world and say, look how bad everything is. But Peter is not saying, hey, you need to like look at the state of affairs around you and, and notice how everything is going uh, badly. He's saying you have to look at the state of affairs in your own heart. He says the time has come for judgment to begin with the people of God. Like Peter lives, this, this world that, that Peter is writing to, uh, the Roman Empire was a place where babies were exposed. Unwanted babies were just put on the street. People, uh, people spat upon the poor. Sexual immorality was prevalent. Idols were worshipped. If any place deserves some sort of condemnation, Peter could be looking out and be like, um, God, I don't think they have it all together. But that's not what Peter invites us to. Peter says, let judgment begin with you. Jesus has a way of saying this. He says, don't look at the, the speck in your neighbor's eye and ignore the plank in your own eye. Friends, I'm not saying that there are not things in our world that need to be condemned. I'm not saying that there are not powers that need to be resisted. I'm not saying that there are times where the church has to not just say we believe the right things, but have to stand in solidarity with those who deal with the brunt of oppression. I'm not saying any of those things. Please don't hear me on that. But please hear me say this. 
that the call, the call of Lent and the call of this moment for the church as God, I think, is doing a new thing is the, is the call of David in Psalm 51 as he says, Search me, O God, and know me. See that there is nothing unclean in me. We have to start there. We cannot cleanse the world of, of its evils. We cannot look at the society that we live in and say, Look how broken it is without beginning to understand that our lives are broken. And we have to allow ourselves to be broken before God. This is what Peter is getting at. Peter's saying, look, you could spend all your time looking at how, you know, the politicians are doing crazy things again and it just spirals downward. You could spend all of your time doing that. And for us now, you can just hit refresh. And it's like, wow, I didn't even know that was possible. But they found a new way to be corrupt, right? You could spend all of your time with these sorts of things. But perhaps, perhaps... What God is trying to do is not to say, look out there, but look in here. What would it mean for judgment to begin with us? What would we find? And here's the beautiful thing. What you find is not God condemning you. What you find is not that God is angry with you, that that secretly your suspicions about God, about him waiting to catch you, have been true all along. What you find is that God is welcoming you, that he's shaping you, that he's transforming your life. And so what would it mean for judgment to begin with us? Peter's saying that as we begin to allow God's judgment, allow his ways to to confront and transform our ways, we do this not by seizing the reins of power of the, the, the culture, but by allowing God to come near to us. Peter writes in 1 Peter earlier in the chapter, beginning in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers over a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. And like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Here's what I'm saying. As Peter invites us to begin judgment with our own lives, as he invites us, he says the time is near, the end of all things is drawing close. What are the things that we have to do now? He outlines them for us in 1 Peter. He says, pray. He says, be of sober mind. Allow God to come near and to speak a word that is true over your life. He says, love one another. He says, don't get caught up in your churches and your communities and bickering over small things. Love covers over a multitude of sins. He says, serve. Use whatever gift you have, and when you speak, and we all do speak as though you speak the very words of God. He said, these things will change the world. Peter then exhorts his congregation once more. He says, those who suffer according to God's will should entrust themselves to their faithful creator. And continue to do good. Peter equates this with what Jesus did in 1 Peter 2.23. Jesus, when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And friends, God is saying to you and to us today that no matter what your story, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're enduring, 
God can be trusted with our lives. He can be trusted with the darkness that we hold in our hearts. As judgment begins with us, as we begin to see the ugliness is in there, God is not going to be found like holding and teasing it over. He's going to say, come close, come near. And in the midst of our trials and our suffering, here is the reality of the gospel that's so incredible. Again, I I have to remind you of this because it's so important. Peter's talking to people who have very little agency, very little power. And what does he tell them to do? He says, entrust yourself to God and do good. Do good. Step out towards your neighbors. Show them who God is, even as they are reviling you, even as they are treating you with contempt. Do good. Friends, this is what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. Are we a people who don't feel the need to establish our case, but step out into the world with the goodness and the beauty of God. And when we suffer with Jesus, we, like Jesus, are no longer victims, but we are active agents in the redemption of the world, participating in the sufferings of Jesus. There's a documentary that came out uh, this year. They actually put out another part. It's called Sheep Among Wolves. Uh, It's about the Iranian church. And the Iranian church has been exploding. And if you know anything about the politics of Iran, um, not exactly friendly to uh, Christian worship and practice, much less so if you're a proselyte, if you're somebody who converts to Christianity. And this, this, this movement has begun. And it's, it's happening in all these incredible ways as primarily women church leaders are gathering people as they're able and teaching them to pray, teaching them about Jesus. And it's just the, the, the Holy Spirit is moving like wildfire. The church is growing at this exponential rate. And you hear the stories of some of the women as they talk about the things that they've endured, being sexually abused, being physically punished by their husbands. But still they come back to this reality that Jesus is more. He's worth more. And what they keep saying over and over again is what we hit on here in 1 Peter. That not only is Jesus more, not only is this commitment worth something more to me, it's that Jesus gives me this strength and invites me into his presence that as I suffer, I find that God is there with me in my my midst. And friends, whether you're suffering here and it's because of your commitment to Jesus and whether that's you know, part of your, your life and your, maybe your career or something like that has been capped because of your commitment to Jesus, or you just came in here suffering, can I offer you just this word? Jesus meets us in our suffering. Like if I were to summarize First Peter and I were to say like to us as an American church, um, I, I think that our time of suffering is coming. I, I, I do. I think we have to hear these words as a word that of preparation and of a future. But there are churches in our midst. We have black brothers and sisters today who have been suffering for a long time. And they've been showing us the way of what it means to draw close to Jesus when the society and the culture are against you. And friends, this morning, we could talk about that kind of suffering. But I also want to talk about just the suffering that we endure as a people. The suffering that we endure through the course of life is that God himself is drawing near to you. And that in the midst of our darkest nights, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our darkest valleys, Jesus himself is enacting the beautiful truth of Scripture that no matter what, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. 
And I don't know what you're suffering with this morning. I don't know if you're suffering at all. But Jesus himself is drawing near to you. And this changes our suffering and invites something new and reconciliation and beauty and transformation to take place in our midst. So I am so grateful this morning that we get to hear just this powerful word that in the midst of our suffering, God draws near. And he meets us this morning. Let us pray. Jesus, you are good. God, your presence goes before us, God. It meets us. And so, Lord, in our suffering, would we find that you are with us? God, would we find that you're calling us to a a, a world that is uh, so often misunderstands our heart for you, our heart for this world? God, but even as we are hard-pressed on all sides, God, that you are drawing near. And so, God, would you show us, as your power only can, that you draw near in our brokenness. God, you draw near in our darkest hours. God, would you prepare us as a people, God, to suffer? Or would you prepare us as a people to live out the beauty of your gospel, loving one another, God, praying, God, embracing your presence? As a church, would we, we be willing to suffer on behalf of the world because it is through suffering, God, that's, that the, the world, the paradigms of the world, the power structures of the world are challenged to see the strength of your cross. God, that as you extended your arms, as you embraced the world by letting nails be nailed into your hands, God, Lord, you transformed the world through your power and your perfect love. Jesus, we ask that in our suffering today, God, that you would be seen to be near to us. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.